0: The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit ReformedForum.org. Well, I think uh, for many of our long term listeners, uh, our speaker this evening no introduction, but I will introduce him nonetheless. We're so delighted to have you with us, and we're delighted to be able to bring to you uh, some of our favorite and most dear uh, theologians. Dr. Scott Oliphant, we admire him so much and thank him so much for being with us. He serves as professor of apologetics and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I took many courses with him and was always edified by his courses. In seminar discussions and just the opportunities that he takes and the time that he puts in with the students, uh, being able to uh, lend an ear for those young students who want to pester him with questions about Van Til and, and uh, the problems with Thomas Aquinas' uh, Doctrine of God. Dr. Oliphant uh, has written many books. Uh, many of you, no doubt, will have copies of his books, uh, Covenantal Apologetics, which I commend to you as a, an instant classic on Reformed apologetics. His book, God With Us, which discusses the doctrine of God from a Reformed perspective. He'll be speaking about themes from that book this evening and tomorrow. Uh, reasons for Faith, which was very influential in my life. I re- remember reading that on many a flight to and from Philadelphia myself. But the battle belongs to the Lord. For any of you looking for a Bible study or or a men's group, if you're looking for an introduction to apologetics from a Reformed and Biblical standpoint, I commend that book to you as well. He's also edited Justified in Christ, which lays out for us a very Reformed and historic view of what it means to be justified in union with Christ. We cannot be justified without having been united to Him by faith. All of these books are available for you at our book table downstairs. He's also the co-editor of Revelation and Reason, New Essays in Reformed Apologetics, and the editor and annotator of the fourth edition of Cornelius Van Til's The Defense of the Faith. Now, I don't list those to you just to pad his, his CV, but I list those to you in order to demonstrate the wealth and riches that he has brought to the church. And, the well, and just to give you a foretaste of the wealth and riches that he will bring to us this evening as he discusses what it means for the Son to be autotheos. What it means for Jesus Christ, even before He was Jesus Christ, a deep thought itself. What it means for the Son to be God in and of Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His divinity underived. So please uh, give us a hand to our speaker this evening, Dr. Scott Oliphant. Welcome him warmly and give all of your attention to him as he brings to us the message this evening. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Well, good
1: for you. Reformed people clapping. It's great to be with you and to meet uh, some of you uh, so far. Uh, others I hope to meet uh, tonight and tomorrow and uh, to uh, see what is what the Lord is doing in your own uh, life. Um, I would be remiss, although I might um, be punished for this, but I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention to you in this room Uh, that the man who brought me into the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, John Hilblink, and his wife are here. Um, I remember uh, in 1980 when I began a a class with John, my wife and I, and another couple, the membership class, and the first thing I said to him is, I'm happy to do this with you, Reverend, but I just want you to know um, you'll never baptize my children. And a year later, our first son was baptized in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we've uh, been there ever since. Uh, So John began the church in Amarillo, Texas, moved from there to Portland, Maine, and is now near you in Rockford and has has had a very fruitful and effective uh, ministry in the OPC. Um, The negative is, if there's anything here I say that you don't like, it's Hillblink's fault. Um, He... He got me into this, so um, he's the one responsible. What I want to do this evening is uh, talk to you about the aseity of the sun. Now, the way I understand Reformed uh, Forum and the way I've tried to um, interact with it um, through the years at Camden's uh, urging and leadership is that we uh, want to move beyond um, Sunday school—nothing wrong with Sunday school—but we want to move beyond Sunday school to begin to think uh, carefully, as best we can, about theology and about Scripture and about how to think as Christians. Uh, so, the lecture I'm going to give you uh, tonight um, will—some of this will be new to some of you, not to all of you, because some of these topics have been broached on Reform Forum—but new to some of you. Uh, and in that vein, I just want to say be patient, and uh, I think as we move along, at least the ideas that I'm going to present will be clear enough uh, to you, at least I hope that's the case. If not, we can talk about it after the lecture. Uh, Camden has allotted me an hour, at least until 8.30. I think probably we'll go till about 8.30. Just I just want you to know at this late date, in Philadelphia, I'm usually in bed. It's a quarter of nine in Philadelphia, so... <laughs> At this late time, I just want you to know where we're where we're heading in this topic. Philip Schaff, in his history of the Christian Church, notes a couple of points with respect to the Trinity that are, at least in my estimation, overstated in one case and simply false in another. With respect to the Athanasian Creed. And its explanation of the Trinity, Schaff says this, he says, "...beyond the Athanasian Creed, the orthodox development of the doctrine, that is the doctrine of the Trinity, in the Roman and evangelical churches to this day has made no advance. This creed, he said, is unsurpassed as a masterpiece of logical clearness, rigor, and precision." And so far as it is possible at all to state in limited dialectic form and to protect against heresy the inexhaustible depths of a mystery of faith into which the angels desire to look, this liturgical theological confession achieves the task. Now, I think the Athanasian Creed is correct in its entirety. I agree with Schaff that it gives, in creedal form, the fullest explanation of what we confess of the Trinity. But I think Schaff overstates the case. There have been developments and advances in the doctrine of the Trinity which have provided further clarity and precision as to how we ought to speak and think about the three-in-one. So I think in that case he overstates. But he also misstates Calvin's disposition with respect to the Athanasian and Nicene creeds. Specifically, with regard to Calvin's view of the Trinity, which is where I want us to focus tonight, Calvin's view of the Trinity and of those creeds, the Athanasian and Nicene Creed, Schaff says that Calvin refused to sign the Athanasian creed, he says, because of, quote, its damnable clauses, unquote, and that Calvin depreciates the Nicene creed. But Calvin's refusal to sign the Athanasian creed at one particular moment in History was not because of those clauses. Calvin says explicitly that it was because on that occasion when he was asked to sign, he was concerned not to show allegiance to anything at that point, that particular point, but Scripture. Calvin never intended to depreciate the Nicene Creed, only to provide clarification to its affirmations. So it was not the case that Calvin had serious problems with the history of the development of Trinitarian doctrine. He did, however, want to ensure that our speaking and our thinking about the Trinity was as biblically and theologically accurate as it could be in these matters. And this is where the discussion of Trinitarian theology, especially as it relates to the person of the Son, is advanced by Calvin. So against what Schaff affirms and asserts, I want to argue that Calvin has made a significant advance in our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity that we would do well to listen carefully to. In his recent book entitled The eternal generation of the Son, Kevin Giles offers his analysis of the sometimes confusing evangelical debate on the Trinity. Specifically, Giles notes that the doctrine of eternal generation is supported by men such as Roger Beckwith, Andreas Kostenberger, Donald MacLeod, Robert Letham, Fred Sanders, and others. But he also lists among the detractors of eternal generation, those who would not want to affirm it, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, John Feinberg, Millard Erickson, Robert Raymond, Paul Helm, William Lane Craig, and he says to some extent John Frame. More interesting to me though, Giles says the reason why many reject the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son is due primarily, he says, to A. A. Hodge, Charles Hodge, and B. B. Warfield. Now, this analysis, uh, specifically, that the Princetonians, he mentions, rejected the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, fails, in my estimation, to see the significant advance that the Princetonians made in Trinitarian theology. Obviously, this could be a much longer discussion. But, for example, in his discussion of the eternal generation of the Son, here's what Charles Hodge says. Here's how he sums up his concern about that doctrine. I want you to listen carefully. Hodge says this in sum with respect to the eternal generation of the Son. He says, "...all that is contended for is that we are not shut up to the admission that derivation of essence is essential to sonship. All right? That's where we're wanting to focus our attention this evening, so I want to repeat this. All that is contended for, Hodge says, is that we are not shut up to the admission that Derivation of essence, that's the key. Derivation of essence is essential to sonship. This concern of Hodge, this is Charles Hodge, comes directly from Calvin. And Hodge's concern, I would suggest, is a significant advance in Trinitarian theology. Even though it remained the minority view in Reformed thought in the 17th century, it seems to me Calvin's view is the best way, biblically and theologically, to think about and discuss the status of the Son in relation to the Father. That's where I want us to focus. At this point, before getting to Calvin's advance I'd like to summarize the majority view that was the majority view of the Reformed even into the 17th century and thereafter with respect to the relation of the Father and the Son. That view, the majority view, was set forth most explicitly by Thomas Aquinas, though it has earlier precedents in the church fathers as well one of the things you'll recognize about this address that I'm giving you tonight and the one tomorrow is that my goal is to tear away the tears of Thomism from reform thinking. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And you would be surprised how many Calvinist Reformed thinkers are still enamored with, committed to, a Thomistic way of thinking. Thomas did much that was good. There's much in Thomas that needs to be rejected, and we haven't weeded it out yet. So this is an attempt to argue that we have to weed it out in our thinking about the Trinity. Thomas argues explicitly that the essence of the Son is, by definition, a communicated Essence, communicatio essentiae, communication of essence from father to son. Thomas says this. I just pulled one quote almost randomly. There are so many others that could have been lined up along with this one. But Thomas says this. This is from ST1A, question 41, answer 3. He says, in this way, then, we say that the Son is begotten of the essence of the Father inasmuch as the essence of the Father, here's the point, communicated by generation subsists in the Son. Communicated by generation. The essence of the Father is communicated from the Father to the Son. And the language of Trinitarian theology, at least from Thomas, some would say from Augustine forward, that's debatable, but at least from Thomas into the Reformation era was that the Son had both His being and His person from the Father. This former point, that the Son has His being, His essence from the Father, that's the point that Calvin sought to reject. Now let me be clear here. The majority view of the Reformed, even as it is beholden to Thomistic language, has been deemed orthodox. We're not here in the midst of Heresy versus orthodoxy. We're in the midst of the clarification of language and thinking with respect to the relationship of the Father and the Son. So the majority view, which is Thomistic, and the minority view, which is Calvin's view, both of those are orthodox. The debate is not whether the Son is affirmed as self-existent. Both views affirm that. Instead. As Brannon Ellis, in his masterful work on this, explains, the debate is whether the Son's self-existence, all right, I realize it's late, but here's where you've got to perk up a little bit. The debate is whether the Son's self-existence can be expressed only adjectivally, or is it proper to speak of the Son's self-existence adverbally as well? That's one way to think about it. Or, in other words, can we say only that the Son is the self-existent God, which everyone affirms, or can we also affirm that the Son is God self-existently, adverbally, as Calvin and some of his followers would affirm. In B.B. Warfield's seminal summary, of Calvin's Doctrine of the Trinity, an article I would commend to your reading. He focuses on Calvin's clarification of the phrase in the Nicene Creed, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That last clause is where Calvin begins his work. Very God of very God. In the midst of controversy over the doctrine of the Trinity, Calvin is seeking to clarify exactly how theos ek theu, God of God, exactly how that is meant to apply to the Son as the second person of the Trinity. What do we mean, in other words, when we say God of God? In the Nicene Creed. Now, some of you will know that a problem had arisen in the late 1530s because of a theologian by the name of Pierre Caroli. Caroli had accused Calvin of being, at some points, Arian, at other points, Sabellian. So, at some points, he minimizes the status of the sun as Arius would have done, thinking him to be perhaps only a creature, even if a godlike creature. And at other points, he's thinking the sun is simply a mask for who God is. Seems to be that way, but isn't that way. Modalism is Sabellianism. And Caroli accused Calvin of both. Arguing that Calvin depreciates the personhood of the son. Calvin defended himself against this charge in 1537, was vindicated, and Caroli was banished. The problem for Caroli was that he did not see clearly enough in Calvin an affirmation of the deity and personhood of the second person of the Trinity and the distinctions that have to be made in the midst of those affirmations. That was a significant controversy in the life of John Calvin. Later in the 1550s, Calvin was again challenged with respect to his doctrine of the Trinity by a man named Valentine Gentilus. Gentilis, according to Theodore Beza, had determined that nothing could be true which did not conform to human reason. I'm tempted, I'm so tempted to get off script here. Never think that. All right? Never think that something cannot be true because you can't understand it. That's been the bane of the church for thousands of years. If I can't understand it, it can't be true. It's what Van Til said. What my net can't catch isn't fish. If my mind can't grasp it, it can't be true. Don't ever think that. You lose the character of God when you think that. Okay, back to the script. Gentilus thought that it can't be true if it doesn't conform to human reason. So he began to propagate what he called essentiation. Essentiation is according to Gentilus a propagation of essences, three in number, both as persons and as essences. In other words, says Gentilus, three gods Three eternal, omnipotent, and infinite beings. Right away, you detect a problem. For Gentiles, this is a significant point. Whatever was affirmed of the one God must be affirmed of the three persons in the same way. Now that goes contrary, completely contrary to the Athanasian Creed and to the history of Trinitarian thinking. The Athanasian Creed, the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet there are not three Eternals but one. That's the way to think about the Trinity. Gentila says, that makes no sense to me, I can't understand that. And so he opts for a rationalistic understanding of God. So there's one essence, and guess what? three essences, one mind, three minds, one omniscience, three omnisciences that's the way Gentilus began to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, so Calvin then begins again now in the fifteen fifties to set out and clarify how it is that the essence of the Godhead relates to the persons this. We'll never get to the bottom of this, but Calvin is trying to work this through biblically, given the controversies that have come to his study. And Warfield notes that what Calvin adds to the discussion is, quote, simplification, clarification, and equalization. Now, you may want to argue with the simplification idea, but I think certainly there's clarification and equalization. These controversies are in the background now as Calvin writes his last edition of the Institutes in 1559. That's why you can find much of this in that iteration of the Institutes. So I want us to focus on Calvin's point with respect to the deity of the Son. The question to be answered is, what is meant in the Nicene Creed by Theos theou," God of or from God, God of God. With respect to the second person of the Trinity, Calvin was insistent in the face of much opposition that the Son had to be thought of as autoousia, himself the essence, the same essence, or as a say. You want the Latin, of himself with respect to his essence. Calvin was concerned that the church not understand Christ's own deity, his godness, as in any way being a derived deity. If we're going to confess Christ to be truly God of himself, we could not in any way at the same time confess His godness to be a derived deity. His deity, Calvin says, as with the Father, is utterly and absolutely, that's a significant term, absolutely from Himself, His deity, and not from the Father. This was in stark contrast to Gentilus, who was insisting that only the Father's deity could be assay; only the Father was himself autotheos. So here's what Calvin says. Quote from Calvin, Institutes 113. And they will not benefit at all by another evasion that Christ was God in His Father. For even though we admit that in respect to order, listen, here's the clarification, the qualification, even though we admit that in respect to order and degree, order and degree, taxes in the Trinity, the beginning of divinity is in the Father, yet we say that it is a detestable invention that essence is proper to the Father alone, as if He were the deifier of the Son. For in this way, either essence would be manifold, or they call Christ God in title and imagination only. If they grant that the Son is God, he says, but second to the Father, then in him, in the Son, will be begotten and formed the essence that is in the Father, unbegotten and unformed. That's Calvin. That's Calvin in the 1559 Institute. That's Calvin with all of this controversy in the background. So it's not the case, according to Calvin, that the Son has His deity from the Father. With respect to His deity, the Son is Ase, from Himself. The Aseity of the Son is the Son's alone. He is autotheos, as is the Father, as is the Holy Spirit. As Calvin says, with respect to a certain order in the Godhead, which, by the way, was never meant to include a hierarchy of being, certain order in the Godhead, the Father is first, but not with respect to His deity. Father, Son, and Spirit are all three autotheos. Calvin goes on in referring to his opponents, Institutes 113.25, He says, they are obviously deceived in this connection for they dream of individuals each having its own separate part of the essence. Yet we teach from the scriptures that God is one in essence and hence that the essence both of the Son and of the Spirit is unbegotten. In a Thomistic construal, Of the Trinity, which made its way into Reformed theology and became the majority opinion, the unity that we confess of God, notice this, is dependent upon because it is relativized by the differentiation of essence in the persons in the Godhead. And this makes the essential unity of God dependent dependent on the Father's communication of His essence to the Son and to the Spirit. Calvin, in all of his brilliance and insight, which to me moves him light years beyond any of his peers and any of those who came previously, Calvin moves from the Thomistic articulation of a communicated essence to a formulation that would relativize the person's only and not the essence. So for Calvin, the one essence of God is one in that it is in no way to be distinguished among the three. This is what led some to the accusation that Calvin was civilian in his articulation of the Trinity. For surely they would say, if the Son is identical, essentially identical to the Father, the best that we can conclude is that His Sonship is nothing more than a mode of the Father's being. Here's what Calvin says in the face of that accusation. He says, if the distinction between the Father and the Word be attentively considered, we shall say that one is from the other, the taxes, the order. If, however, he continues, the essential quality of the Word be considered, the essence of the Word be considered, insofar as He is one God with the Father, whatever can be said concerning God, May also be applied to him, the second person in the glorious Trinity. And then he says this this is absolutely key. Now, what is the meaning of the name Jehovah? What did that answer imply that was spoken to Moses? I am who I am. Charles Hodge refers to this quotation in a letter from. Calvin, and then says, Hodge says, this argument is conclusive. Most importantly, biblically and theologically, was this notion that the Son is Himself, Yahweh, I Am. Surely, Calvin said, if Christ claims for Himself the identity of Yahweh, if the New Testament moves seamlessly from Old Testament ascriptions of Yahweh to assigning those ascriptions to Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, then there can be no way that I am who I am can have His essential deity derived from someone else. This truth and its implications were most significant in Calvin's theology and in his doctrine of the Trinity. Calvin goes on, if we had time, we could look at it to show how Scripture applies the name Yahweh to Christ. And Charles Hodge, in his support of Calvin's view, says this. He says, if Christ be Jehovah, and if the name Jehovah implies self-existence, then Christ is self-existent. In other words, Self-existence and necessary existence as well as omnipotence and all other divine attributes belong to the divine essence common to all the persons of the Trinity. And therefore, it is the triune God who is self-existent and not one person in distinction from another. That is, Hodge says, self-existence is not to be predicated of the divine essence only, nor of the Father only, only, but of the Trinity, or of the Godhead, as subsisting in three persons. And therefore, Hodge concludes, as Calvin says, when the word God is used indefinitely, it means the triune God, and not the Father, in distinction from the Son and Spirit. This is the minority view in Calvin's day. It remained the minority view in the 17th century. Given this understanding of the notion of autotheos, or autoousia of all three persons in the Godhead, there are implications for the Son with respect to the notion of eternal generation. What does it mean, in other words, that the Son is spoken of in Scripture as the only begotten of the Father? Can Christ be both autotheos, and at the same time, Theos, ek Theu. Calvin's answer to this was yes, with one clarification. In a letter to Gentilus, Calvin makes a crucial, sometimes ignored or neglected distinction between the person of the Son and his essential deity. The person on the one hand and his essential deity on the other. In speaking of the Nicene Creed, Calvin says the design of the fathers was none other than to maintain the origin which the Son draws from the Father in respect of person, without in any way opposing the sameness of the essence and deity in the two. So that, as to essence, the Logos is God. Without beginning, or without principium, without source. While in His person, the Son has His principium, His source, from the Father. In other words, the eternal generation of the Son is with respect to His person, not to His essence or His being. By extension also, the procession of the Spirit is with respect to Him as person and not as essentially God. In this way, Warfield says, Calvin brought an equalization to the doctrine of the Trinity that had not been explicit prior to his time. Now, as you might expect, Calvin's discussion did not end the matter. There continued to be, still continues to be today, Arguments given on both sides of the debate. Most of the arguments given are given within the context of historic Orthodox Trinitarianism. So again, the disagreement is not with respect to heresy versus Orthodoxy. But it is concerned, as Calvin was concerned, with how best biblically and theologically to think and speak about the Triune God. Calvin's view, then, should be seen as an, as an attempt convincing, in my view, to clarify rather than to subvert the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. So, for example, in the next century, Turretin tries to straddle the fence between Calvin's view and the Thomistic view. Here's what he says. Listen to the way Turretin puts it. He's a master at language. He says, although the Son is from the Father, nevertheless, he may be called God of himself, autotheos, not with respect to his person, but essence, not relatively as Son, for thus he is from the Father, but absolutely as God, inasmuch as he has the divine essence existing from itself and not divided or produced from another essence and so you're saying to yourself because you're wide awake and you followed all this oh good turton's following calvin well then he says a few paragraphs down as all generate this is quoting turton as all generation indicates a communication of essence on the part of the begetter to the begotten by which the begotten becomes like the begetter and partakes of the same nature with him. So this wonderful generation is rightly expressed as a communication of essence from the Father. Turretin, a brilliant theologian. I require him in my class, so I'm not standing up here saying he should not be read or studied. He should be because of his brilliance, but he goes with the majority by the time he's writing his institutes. He tries to give a nod to Calvin, hurrah for Calvin, but uh, Thomas was right, communication of essence. So Turretin sticks with the majority view among the seventeenth century reform, so he's in good company with the likes of Fusius, Sankey and Demore, but others, such as Trocassius Jr., Keckerman, and Macovius, opt for Calvin's view. Let me give you one example. Bartholomew Kackerman was not convinced by the traditional Trinitarian language of communicative essence. For him, no matter how much one wanted to affirm that the essence communicated to the Son was the same essence as the Father's, the language used to explain the Son's essence required a foundational and fundamental distinction. So that while the essence was affirmed to be identical to the Father's, the how of that essence, the mode of the essence, was in no way the same. The Father's essence was absolutely His. The Son's essence was of the Father. So there could be no way, by good and necessary consequence, Keckerman argued, to affirm the simplicity of the one God. There is a distinction that by definition is essential a distinction with respect to essence that requires essential differentiation. So Keckerman says this, quote, If there should be some distinction between the persons as far as the absolute essence is concerned, then God should not be purely one, nor would the essence be most perfectly one. Against the Roman Catholic cardinal, Bellarmine Keckerman states, If the essence communicates and is communicated, there are therefore two essences. Nor indeed is it able to be understood that one and the same thing is communicated from itself. In other words, a difference in the mode of essence, the how, can be nothing other than a difference in the essence itself. Keckerman following Calvin. One other matter, one final matter that I think is worth noting and to me is telling in this entire debate. A matter of significant theological weight, again pointed out by Brannon Ellis. Ellis says the initial contention between the followers of Arminius and the Reformed, was not, first of all, centered around soteriological concerns. Those concerns became the focus at and after the Senate of Dort. The initial public controversy, however, between the Arminians and the Reformed had its focus, listen, in the nature of the sons' aseity. The Arminian view of the Trinity remained orthodox. We have to remember that. But Arminius' own view was insistent against the Son's aseity, absolute aseity, so insistent that his followers, the Remonstrants, moved to the edges of Socinianism. The Remonstrants argued that only God the Father was God self-existently. That's the adverbial use. Episcopius, who was the codifier of Arminian theology and the appointed speaker for the Remonstrant party, Episcopius explained the doctrine of the Trinity and he concentrated much of his attention on what he repeatedly called the subordinatio, of the Son and Spirit. A subordination of the Son and the Spirit. This is one removed from Arminius. This subordination was not simply with respect to the Son's redemptive humiliation, but was characteristic of the imminent Godhead as well. The subordination of the Son was an ontological reality for Episcopius. Now, let me just say here parenthetically, this is an aside, because some of you may know of this, you may be interested in it. This view of ontological subordination has gained ascendancy again in the current, though primarily Baptistic, controversy concerning gender equality and complementarity. Many now want to hold a complementarian view on the basis of an ontological subordination of the Son to the Father, so that the Son's role as Son ontologically is to be obedient to the Father. This, I think, confuses the ontology and the economy of the Trinity, including the pactum salutis, and so it has extensive ramifications for theology. The arguments given want to remain distant from Arminian theology, but if consistent, must move in that direction. That's just a parenthesis. So, while wanting to espouse Orthodox Trinitarian theology, Episcopius, committed as he was to Arminian theology, clearly articulated ontological subordination among the persons in God. This is due, as he himself would admit, to the emphasis of Arminius on the Son's derived essence. Since only the Father is God absolutely, the Son and Spirit can only be God by virtue of the Father communicating His godness, His essential deity to the other two persons. And as we can begin to see in the history of theology, this can lend itself to a movement toward Socinianism. So as Episcopius himself says in his Institutes, Christ's pronouncement that my Father is greater than I, John 14, 28, Episcopius says, refers not simply to his redemptive mission, I'm quoting him here, but to the Son as Son. For as such, He is indeed inferior to the Father. Continuing now, Episcopius, Indeed, anyone who possesses deity of himself is greater than one who has it communicated to him from another. What began to happen In the Arminian controversy is that the communication of essence that began with Thomas Aquinas and moved through the Reformation reached its consistent climax in Arminian theology in which there's an affirmation of the inferiority of the Son and the Spirit, the subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father by virtue of that communicated essence. That's where it leads. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion, it seems to me, is that while the majority view is now included as orthodox in Trinitarian theology, that is, Thomas's view, still orthodox, the weight of biblical and theological evidence with respect to the Son, in my view, is that we should speak of His self-existence adverbially and adjectivally in order to be consistent with Scripture and Reformed Biblical and theological expression. He is the self-existent God, and He is God self-existently. He does not have His essence by way of communication, but He has it by way of His deity. Specifically, since the Son identifies himself as Yahweh, and since Yahweh is I am who I am," we remain closest to God's own description of his own triune self when we attribute the Theos Ectheeu of the Nicene Creed not to the deity or essence of the Son but to his person. Calvin's clarification was this: we affirm that the Son is Theos Theou, God from God, only with respect to His person. But we must not do it because of the weight of biblical evidence, specifically that the Son is Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. We must not do it with respect to His deity. The Father is Autotheos, the Son is Autotheos, and the Holy Spirit is Autotheos. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that You would help us in our own thinking to think Your thoughts after You, to read Your Word and those who have followed Your Word so that we might think properly and biblically about Your character. We confess that we will never plumb the depths of your incomprehensible nature. But we also confess that you have given us a true revelation. And we long to follow it in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our worship. Help us to do that for Christ's sake. Amen.
0: There's a load of wonderful information there and very provocative content as well. Much for us to think about and meditate on in terms of the Son's own existence. Of course, we want to consider what it means for us to be sons of God, and that must begin with the eternal Son of God Himself, whose image we are being conformed to by the Holy Spirit. So uh, at this point in time, we will dismiss down to the Fellowship Hall. We have a dessert reception available. There's coffee and food and snacks, and most importantly, opportunity for Reformed Theological Conversation. So you'll have opportunity to ask Dr. Oliphant your questions if you have, but also plenty other Reformed Forum people are here. And also, all you participants are wonderful and welcome, and we look forward to speaking with you as well. So let's head on downstairs for our evening session. We look to begin things, I believe, at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. If I don't see any shaking of the heads, I believe that's correct, not having the program in front of me. Thanks so much for this wonderful evening, and let's continue our discussion downstairs. You're dismissed.